He who does not believe the Son does not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, even the renewal by the Holy Spirit. As we prepare to study God's word this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that you revealed it, breathed it out under the oversight of God the Holy Spirit through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, and that you have preserved this, you've overseen this preservation over the centuries, that we can have great confidence that what we have before us is your word, and that you have revealed to us that your word should be central in our life, that it is through your word that we are sanctified. That means that that emphasizes our spiritual growth, that it is through your word we come to understand our salvation, that it is free of charge, that Christ paid the penalty for us, that by trusting in him we have everlasting life. But when we are given that life, we are born again and we are babies and we are to desire the unadulterated milk of your word that by it we may grow. And so, Father, we dedicate this time to a study of your word that we may be spiritually nourished and that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So this morning we are continuing our study of the spiritual skills, the spiritual skills that God has revealed to us in his word and in this study, it's a synthesis of various passages and commands and instructions in the Word of God boiled down to these, these ten skills. And you will recognize that you've heard parts of them taught here or taught there, but this way it pulls it together in a, in a structure so that it helps us to understand sort of how they fit together and how we are to use them. It's a, it's a tremendous tool for organizing uh, the practical application of Scripture as we face the challenges and issues of life. So we are coming to a point where we're looking at some of the more mature skills, the skills that are developed as we have grown in our uh, spiritual life, and that is developing the love for God and our love for one another. And this is what we've been focused on in the past two lessons, and we will probably have at least one more as we go forward. So in this lesson, what we are going to do is focus on understanding love a little more. Love is an extremely misunderstood concept in American culture. 
people think of love as as emotion. They think of love in terms of romance. They think in uh, love in terms of of sentimentality. Uh, and all none of these none of these have anything to do with the love that God has for us or the love that we are to have for one another. And so we have to understand this. How do we define love? And I'm breaking this down a little differently for us. As we've gone through Scripture, some of these thoughts have been on my mind since I taught through this in uh, back in the fall in Philippians chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 10, and we need to, I think, break it down a little differently than we have in the past. So we're looking at this in terms of two categories. The first I'm going to call biblical love for all mankind, which you can abbreviate as BLAM, B-L-A-M, biblical love for all mankind. This is predicated on the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. That's directed to Israel. It's part of the Mosaic Law. And the issues were related to what what does it mean to be a neighbor. We looked at that last week when we studied the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan and where Jesus answers that question from the uh, Pharisee, Pharisee, the lawyer of the Pharisees, and wants to know what the two greatest commandments are. And then when Jesus explains them to love your the Lord your God, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, Jesus said, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer responded, well, what do you mean by neighbor? What's interesting is that the rabbinical teaching on that command is extremely strange, limits it to just a few people, not as Jesus is describing it here, that your neighbor is anyone who is in your periphery that has some great need, not just to look at it and ignore it, but in but to treat them as you would wish to be treated in the same circumstances. So that is really for all mankind because your neighbor could be anybody. And as we'll see, that command from Leviticus 19.18, even though it is A, in the Mosaic Law, and B, the Mosaic Law was abolished at the cross, it is repeated several times in the New Testament in relation to commands for the church-age believer. So we are to have this kind of biblical love for all mankind. But when our Lord uh, was finishing up at the uh, Seder meal, the Last Supper, the Passover observed the night before he went to the cross, said to his disciples that I give you a new command, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, that's very important. And just to point out some of the distinctions there between that and Leviticus 19.18, Leviticus 19.18 says the standard for loving your neighbor is as you love yourself. That's setting the bar pretty low because everybody loves themselves. We see this in a quotation or statement in Ephesians 5 about husbands loving your wife 
as their own flesh. And then Paul quotes a proverbial statement that no one ever hated his own flesh. That is scripture. We have people today who think that people dislike themselves or have a low self-image and everything else, but that contradicts what the Bible says. People get disappointed and down about themselves and their failures or many other things because they truly think so highly of themselves and have an unrealistic high expectation. Their problem isn't they have a low self-image. The problem is that they think too highly of themselves to begin with coming out of the womb. They become the center of attention. So we have to understand um, that that's a low bar. Anybody can do that, and it's directed towards any human being. Jesus says that you love one another as I loved you. Jesus gave his life for us. He died on the cross on our behalf. And he said in John 15, greater, or John 16, greater love hath no man that he loves his uh, that he gives his life for his friend. So the the standard is impossible. We then learn in Galatians 5, uh, 22, that this love, this Christian love for one another, is a fruit of the Spirit, which is the result of walking by the Spirit. So it's not the same thing. They are two different at, uh, attitudes of love. For one thing, when you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, when you look at those, they are can be approximated by anybody who is not a believer in Christ. There is a form of love, a form of joy, a form of peace or tranquility that they have. But what is spoken of as the fruit of the Spirit is something distinctively generated in us by the Holy Spirit. It goes beyond what a uh, natural, unsaved human being can produce. So this love that is expected of believers, Jesus then says, by this. So this is going to signify that you are a disciple. By this, all men will know that you are a disciple. Now, a disciple is not the same thing as a believer. A believer is someone who has simply trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have heard the gospel. They reply, respond to the gospel by trusting in Christ. They understand that they're a sinner. They're born spiritually dead. And that the penalty for sin is eternal condemnation. But Christ took upon himself in his own body on the tree our penalty. He paid it. He is a substitute for us. That's very clear from the, from the grammar in the Greek, using a preposition that indicates substitution, one thing for another. So he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He dies in our place. So when we trust in him... It's his merit, not our merit. We are saved. We are born again. And so we are then a, have a second choice to make. The first choice is do we want to uh, have uh, eternal life? Do we want to uh, go to heaven at the time of our death? The second choice is do we want to be a disciple? Do we want to be a student of Jesus Christ? Do we actually want to grow as a believer? 
And everybody has their own concept of how much they want to grow. Some people just want to get out of diapers. Other people want to get into the, you know, kindergarten or first grade where they can learn rudiments of of, um, the alphabet, so to speak, by analogy. Others want to grow to, to spiritual maturity. Everybody sort of sets their own standard of how far they want to go. But a disciple is a believer who has decided that they want to be a student of the Word of God, a student of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the only way that this kind of love develops within the believer's life, is they have to spend time walking by the Spirit and understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. It is not a mystical concept. And so the third thing we're going to see is how the God demonstrated love. That must be the foundation of what we think of when we think of what love is. As believers, we don't go to Webster's Dictionary and say, okay, well, love is an emotion. He's not going to the Bible. We have to go to the Bible because the Bible is the word of the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He is the one who created us. He is the one who uh, created the immaterial part of man that we call the soul. He is the one who made us in his image and likeness so that we can, uh, in Adam and Eve who were perfect without sin, they could love perfectly because they were in the image of God. They were, a fi- we were all finite representations of the infinite creator God. And he created us in order that we might love as he loves. But because of sin, because of spiritual death, that image is not destroyed. That image doesn't disappear. It's just corrupted. And it is only through, number one, regeneration or being born again that we are given new life and only by spiritual growth can we begin to see that that corrupt nature begin to be reformed and renovated. And that comes, uh, Romans 12:2. do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's only as we grow that we see the capacity to love begin to return. Of course, we'll never be perfect. We'll never reach that end game until we are uh, absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord in a resurrection body when we no longer have a sin nature. So as we've gone through this, we've learned these basic spiritual skills, and now we see that they are the foundation for more advanced skills. So just to review, I rebuilt this chart to give us an understanding of the framework in terms of the foundational skill we need to learn to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9. We need to learn to be cleansed of our sins so that we can be restored to fellowship, a term that is not a passive term. It doesn't refer to a state per se, When we understand the meaning of the word koinonia, it indicates an intimate partnership. As one scholar puts it, it is the picture of two people walking together or working on a project toward a common end. And so we are 
uh, in cooperation with God the Holy Spirit. He is always working on our lives to move us to maturity. When we are not walking by the Spirit, He's working on us to convict us of our sin, to uh, make us realize that we need to be brought back into fellowship, and to confess sin. And then when we confess sin, we're restored to that position of fellowship, and we go forward. So you can't solve any difficulty in your life by uh, not confessing sin. I mean, if you're out of fellowship, you're just going to try to solve it with uh, your own human effort, and you're going to try to help God. And when we have many examples in Scripture of believers trying to help God instead of trusting God, and the result is always makes life worse and ends up in a lot of self-induced misery. So the first step is always to confess sin, to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. Instantly, we recover. Then we walk by the Spirit. And that's what these spiritual skills do, is they enable us to continue to walk by the Spirit and not bail out and try to handle it on our own through our sin nature. So the basic skills then are faith rest drill, where we claim promises, we trust God's Word, and we apply it. We are oriented to the grace of God from the point of salvation. We understand that that God has provided everything for us, and we need to learn to rely upon that. So faith, rest, drill, core is the foundation for grace orientation, and then doctrinal orientation. Doctrine is an English word that refers to teaching, the instruction of God's Word, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, that scriptures were breathed out by God are profitable for what? The first thing mentioned is doctrine, for teaching, for instruction. And so that those work together. As we mature, we develop the fact that we know where we're going in life, that the Lord wants to conform us, God wants to conform us to the image of Christ. That is our maturity. It's expressed in terms of virtues in the fruit of the Spirit. We live today in light of eternity. We quit just trying to live from moment to moment. We begin to say, God has a plan for my life, and it's not going to end at uh, glorification. But after the afterward, there's the evaluation judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, and that is to determine my capacity for what I can do in terms of my role and responsibility in the future kingdom and then in eternity into heaven. Beyond that, we begin on the foundation of grace and the foundation of the instruction of God's Word to begin to truly love God more and more. A child loves his parents in one way. An adolescent loves his parents in another way. They're the meal ticket. And then as you get to be an adult, you have a greater appreciation and love for your parents. That's the same way in spiritual life. We love God because he saved us, so we don't have to go to the lake of fire. But then as we get a little older, sometimes we get a little sassy with God, and we have to go through some training exercises. And then as we mature, our love for God deepens, strengthens, and expands. Then we have where we are today, biblical love for all and Christian love for other believers, and then occupation with Christ. And when that, those three all work together, the result is then we experience this tranquility of the soul, the joy that Scripture talks about, this inner, inner happiness. 
So we have reached certain conclusions from this, that as the believer learns about God and all that God has provided for him, our appreciation for him increases, our love develops, and we desire to obey him and serve him. And so many passages we've looked at that our love for God is measured by our obedience to him, our love for Christ. He said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to do that. It is a decision we have to make with each test that comes along. A test is any time we have an option between doing it my way or doing it God's way. So love for God is measured by obedience, not emotion. It's not how we feel about God. Now, that doesn't mean there's no emotion involved, but it means that the emotion is secondary as a response to our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. And so the love for God motivates us then to press on to spiritual maturity. So let's look at some of the promises we've looked at recently in terms of personal love from God for God. When we go to the Old Testament, these passages are reiterated in the New Testament. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mind is not included in this. It is included in New Testament quotations from this. Our heart refers to all of our soul. Heart is a synonym for soul. Soul includes your mind, your self-consciousness, your will, and uh, your conscience. And so it's, it's, a, it's mental. It's, in, it's our intellect with which we love God. We have to understand who he is and what he expects of us. Deuteronomy 11.1 1 says, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. In John 14.23 and 24, Jesus said to, uh, said to him, that is, he's talking to one of his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, that's a special word. In the Greek, it's the word meno, meaning we will abide with him. And in the upper room discourse, that word is technical. It refers to that intimate fellowship. It's not talking about the indwelling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in us. That is true. This is talking about the experiential side of that, which is our uh, fellowship, our partnership with them. Jesus then says in the next verse, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So we have been answering the question, how do we protect our soul in times of testing? Now, a test. A lot of people think a test is when something big, like when a loved one dies or when you lose your job and you look at a zero bank account or you have some major health problem. I have found in observing people and in observing my own life that when you hit the really big tests, you tend to trust God because you realize there's just not another option. That you, you, It really forces you on your knees, so to speak. It's the little things, the person that cuts you off in traffic. It's the customer service person who can only read out of a manual in front of them. 
You know, these are the little things that really irritate us and where we don't do a good job trusting in God. So, so we also have prosperity. We come into an inheritance or we, uh, suddenly get a great promotion and advance at work. And, and so now we have more money. How are we going to handle that? This is the Lord's money for every one of us. How do we treat what God has given us? What, what are the principles for handling prosperity? So this is all about this soul fortress metaphor that I have been building. So we confess our sins and we move back into the soul fortress. Then we learn the principles of walking by the Spirit, the faith rest drill, the grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, and the personal sense of eternal destiny. And now we're going into the next, which has to do with the love of God. All right, so what does the Bible say about understanding the love of God? The connection between these skills. We have personal love for God. We have biblical love for all mankind, blam, or Christian love for one another, C-L-O-A, CLOA. Maybe you'll remember that. And this is going to challenge some of you because you've always used the same abbreviation and now you're going to have to change, but that's good for you. It gets you a little more precise. And then occupation with Christ. So that's what we're focusing on here. These all correlate and enter are interdependent and interconnected. Now, we have to remember that when we look at passages like Deuteronomy 6 and some of the other passages from the Old Testament, this is coming from the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law did not begin uh, the ethical standard for what is expressed in the Mosaic Law. Those absolutes, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, those were absolutes from the moment of creation, the moment of the fall, actually, when once man became a sinner. But they are encased in this law code of Israel. It's analogous to their political constitution. That's what the Mosaic law was, the Mosaic covenant. And so all of these different, different violations, murder, theft, perjury, were sins and wrong before the Ten Commandments were revealed, just as they were wrong before the Constitution of the United States was written. You know, it just it just made it statutory law. Now, when we get started, we see that the summary principles for loving the Lord our God with all of our being is repeated in the New Testament. Now, that's very important. Only one of the Ten Commandments is not repeated in the New Testament. Now, there's a funny story about one, trans, one printing of the Bible called the Adultery Bible because they left out one important word. And instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, it was printed thou shalt commit adultery. That's not the one we're talking about. The one commandment that is not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath commandment, that you shall work. And actually, that's a command. I've gone through that. In the Sabbath command, there's actually about five imperatives. The first is you shall work six days. 
and you shall rest on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath, which was Saturday. Okay, so that's not repeated in the New Testament. But all of the other uh, things in the, New, in the uh, Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Now, you have to understand this as part of uh, it, the principles of interpretation. In covenant theology, which is the theology of Reformed churches, Calvinistic churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, coven- a lot of other churches hold to a covenant or a form of theology like that, where they think that everything in the Old Testament is still true for today except for the things where the New Testament says it's not true, specifically says it's not true. Now, this may twist your mind a little early on a Sunday morning, but it would say that, for example, uh, the Sabbath law, because it's not repeated in or, or prohibited in the New Testament, it continues. Well, that's because they don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church, that the Mosaic law was not given for Gentile believers in the Old Testament times. It was just given for the nation Israel. So you have to understand it in dispensational theology, all of the Mosaic law was abolished at the cross. We studied that in, in uh, our study in Ephesians, back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 13, 14, and 15, that in his, he, he abolished the, the law on the cross. All of it's abolished. So that the only thing that is similar are those things that are restated as absolutes in the New Testament. The only one that's not restated is, is the Sabbath law. So just for back, all of that for background to help us understand how we're using Old Testament passages, uh, we have to go forward now to start understanding uh, love. The starting point to understanding anything in life starts with God. doesn't start with how we feel. doesn't start with how we think. It starts with God and his revelation. And that is just that is something that is just so fundamental. I've mentioned this several times recently, but in the flow of Western thought and Western civilization, uh, even under uh, Roman Catholic uh, hermeneutics in the from the early Middle Ages through the Middle Ages, there they understood that you started everything with the with the Scripture, with God, with what He had revealed. And this was true in the Reformation, but in the Enlightenment reaction, you have Descartes who says, I think, therefore I am. That lays the principle for rationalism, and something changed. That that statement, his approach was, we start with what's going on in my mind, not with the presupposition that there is an omniscient God, and our knowledge is but a subset of his knowledge, that is ultimately dependent upon his knowledge. So we have to start everything with with what has God said. Now, in 1 John 4, 8, John says, He who does not love does not know God. I'm not concerned with interpreting that section of the verse, but the last part, his basis for that is explained in the four clause. That, that always introduces an explanation of why he has said what he said. What he says is, God is love. Now, there's only a few places in Scripture that talk about 
that will use that kind of a precise terminology. God is holy. And so these few statements, God is X, tell us something that is an is a part or is emphasizing something that is part of his nature. Now, all of the attributes are what God is, but there's just a few of these that are really sort of um, sort of spoken of in an emphatic way. God is love. So if God is love, is love is something that defines his essential nature so that, that John is going to emphasize that, then we must start with that with God and what the scripture reveals about his love if we are going to think or talk or communicate anything intelligent intelligent when we use the word love. Otherwise, we're just starting with ourselves and we're making it up on the basis of human experience. John repeats that same phrase a few verses later in 1 John four sixteen, where he says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us, emphasizing this love, love's expression toward us. And then he states the principle again, God is love. Now, when he says he who abides in love abides in God and God in him, remember, I mentioned this a minute ago, that word abide in Johannine theology always relates to intimate fellowship. It's not a word that relates to eternal salvation. It's a word that relates to our day-to-day experience and walk with the Lord. Second thing we learn from Scripture is that God demonstrates his love toward us. So how can we learn anything about God's love? Because he has manifested it to us. He has expressed it to us in several different ways. But the ultimate expression has to do with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, with his giving the Lord Jesus Christ to us. So there is a central passage here in 1 John uh, chapter 4. And 1 John is addressed to believers. It is addressed to believers, and throughout 1 John, there are various statements that are made that are distinguishing between believers who are uh, walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ versus believers who are not, who are just living their life according to their sin nature. They're still saved, but they're not experiencing the uh, benefits today of their salvation. Jesus came and he said, I did not come like a thief to steal and destroy, but to uh, give life, that's eternal life, and to give it abundantly. That's the Christian life. So only as we're walking as disciples, as we're learning to walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, are we going to grow and mature and express and understand and then express this kind of love. So in 1 John 4, 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. It's very clear in the Greek that this is talking about the source of love. So before we can love one another, we have to understand that love comes from God, and therefore we must understand God's love. If we're going to be able to fulfill the command to love one another, it's not sentimentality. It's not emotion. It's not feel good. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's just that's not the core of what love is. 
Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, I have to explain that a little bit because we often think that knowing God or knowing Jesus is a term that is equivalent to becoming saved. And you'll often hear preachers and you'll hear others ask the question to somebody, do you know Jesus? And what they mean by that isn't what the Bible means by that. What they mean by that is, are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know the gospel, and have you believed in the gospel? But you see, and I'll quote this in a minute, in some passages, Jesus, I mean, uh, Jesus was clear with Philip. says, Philip, how long have you been with me, and you don't know me? Now, in the context, we know that Philip is already saved. All the disciples that were left, it was the upper room the night before he went to the cross. He had already kicked Judas out, so the only unbeliever was gone. And he addresses his disciples. He's teaching them to love one another. And it's just a few verses later. Unfortunately, there's a chapter break, but it's just a few verses later when Philip has gotten confused and he said, you know, Lord, how do we... How do we uh, how do we know this? How do we know this? And Jesus says, well, Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? He's saved, but he hasn't come to a more intimate knowledge of who Jesus is. So the one who does not love is not mature. He doesn't know God. He's not applying scripture in his life. He loves God, but if he's not walking by the spirit, he's not, he's expressing, uh, that his ignorance of God. Verse 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. So that love is manifested by God sending his Son in that verse. In verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So in verse 7, it starts off, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This tells us that love originates with God, and this is expressed in the grammar using the phrase ek, which is a Greek preposition indicating source, something where something derives. Uh, ek to theu, it's in a genitive form, so that again re-emphasizes the fact that it is source. For love is from God, we should translate that. A second thing that we see here is that Christian love is the context, not the love for your neighbor, but love for one another. That is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is first of all love. So this is not talking about a human love that we can express toward our neighbor, but one that is produced by God the Holy Spirit and that is a supernatural love that we can only get as a result of our spiritual growth. The one who loves is uh, A, living as a regenerate person, and B, that should be there, B, knows God. This is not soteriological. Knowing God isn't the same. So we go to John fourteen seven, the passage I alluded to a minute ago, where Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
and from now on you know him and have seen him. So this is saying that knowing him is more than just being saved. It has to do with developing knowledge about God and understanding him. That's what love is based on knowing somebody. You can't just look at somebody in a human sense and say, oh, I really love you, but you don't know them. You know, this happens a lot, especially among adolescents. They have real, really, they don't have any uh, knowledge of the person they're saying, I love you to, but their emotions are stirred and that they're just expressing that, but it really is an empty statement. So Philip said to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You know, Philip is just basically a baby believer who hadn't quite developed that understanding of who Jesus is yet, even though he is saved. 1 John 2, 3, and 4, we read, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, this, if it was talking about salvation, it would say, by this we know that we know him, we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. But it's not talking about salvation, it's talking about sanctification, our spiritual growth after salvation. By this we know that we are coming to know him and our spiritual growth if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He doesn't understand the truth of the teaching of God's word. So then a third thing that we notice in 1 John 4, 9, and 10 uh, is the basis for this point. And 4, 9, we read, In this, the love of God, or the love for God, wait a minute, the love of God, the love from God, was manifested toward us. So this phrase, love of God, it's a, basically just... Uh, directly translates a genitive phrase, but it can either mean love for God or love from God. So you really have to look at the context to determine which one it is. So he is talking about the love from God. In this, the love from God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we may live through him. So this is important. That's our demonstration. That's the example. God says if you want to know what love is and you want to talk about it, it is you look to the cross. And then John makes this conclusion, and he says, if God so loved us, or if God loved us in this way, is how it should be translated, we also ought to love one another another. And then we come to a fourth point, that God's love is made manifest, that is, it's revealed to us. That's 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested. The Greek word there is the word that means to reveal or to disclose something. So it's it, the in this, the love for God, or the love from God, was manifested or revealed toward us. And so the that then introduces the way it was revealed. So you could translate this, in this the love from God was revealed toward us and then put either an M dash or a colon because what comes after that is how it was made manifest. 
that God has sent His only begotten Son uh, into the world for the purpose that we might live through Him. Life comes through Jesus, whether it's eternal life or abundant life. And then we go to verse 10. And in verse 10 we read, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. See, the, God is the one who initiates the love. So we have to always start with understanding divine love before we can talk about human love. Uh, verse 10 emphasizes this, that it's his love that is sent through sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word that is uh, commonly used by people today, but it means satisfaction, that the justice and the righteousness of God was satisfied when God looked at the cross and the Lamb of God who, without spot or blemish was made sin for us. That is, he was uh, made forensically sin, sin. He doesn't actually sin, but God imputes our sin to him so that he pays the penalty on our behalf and God's justice is satisfied. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this if is a first-class condition in the Greek, which indicates if and it's assumed to be true. And in this case, it's something that is, is, that is true. If or since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. So to, be, to start with loving one another without starting with God's love for us is to cut us loose from the foundation of the Godhead. So two other verses in the New Testament that emphasize this same thing are John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That phrase, believe in him, is a phrase that is found throughout the Gospel of John. And the Greek uses a preposition, ace, pistuo, ace, autan, believe in him. Also, it means the same thing as believe that he is. Okay, because some people say, well, some people believe, just believe sort of a intellectual fact that believe that Jesus died on the cross for them, but, but, this phrase can be translated either way, and it's accurate. So it's believing in him or believing that he did what he said he would do, should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, spiritually dead, rebels against God, obnoxious to his righteousness, God still loved us, and sent his son who died on the cross for us because the love wasn't based on the any value in the object of love. God didn't love us because we were so great, because we were uh, wonderful people and just misguided. He loved us because of his own integrity, not on the basis of anything on our behalf. And that's what true love is. It's not based on having a personal relationship or knowledge of the person. So that when you get irritated with the uh, 
uh, person in customer service or the person who cuts you off in traffic, you don't know them. But if you don't get irritated, you treat them with gentleness and kindness, then that's not based on their behavior either. That's based on who you are and your own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So let's attempt a definition here before we wrap up. Love is a mental attitude toward others. It's not an emotion. It's not sentimentality. It is a mindset. What happens in, within the context of what we've been studying in Ephesians, is remember this, is that in chapter 2 of Ephesians, the emphasis is on the fact that Jew and Gentile together are now in the body of Christ. We are in him. That concept of being in Christ is our new identity. That's what Paul then refers to, because when he says that in Ephesians uh, 2, 15, 16, 17, he says, we are a new man, a new body, a new building, a new temple. We are a new man. He comes back to that. We saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verses, I think it's 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, that we are a new man. That is, we have a new identity. There's a paradigm shift. There's a significant paradigm shift that should occur in our thinking. We are no longer the accidental result of eons of evolution. We are specifically created by God as human beings in his image, and that when we trust in Christ, we are entered into Christ and we're given a new entity and we have to think about everything in life in a completely different way because we now understand what reality is as members of the body of Christ. And so this is our backdrop for being able to understand what love is. So love is this mental attitude, this paradigm shift that is grounded on God's love for us, which means God desired the best for us. It wasn't based on anything in us. It was based on his divine absolutes. It was the best for, for so love is a mental attitude toward others, which desires the best for them, not in our opinion, but according to the standards of God's integrity. We're gonna, I'm going to show love to this person who doesn't deserve it by anything he did, but I'm going to do it not because of who I am or because of who he is, but who, who God is. And I am now in the body of Christ, and therefore I have to behave a certain way. And this has to get into our, deep into our mental DNA. I remember a wonderful lady, wonderful Christian lady who was the, the cook at Camp Penal when I was growing up. We always called her grandmother because I grew up with her two son, grandsons. They called her grandmother, so everybody started calling her grandmother. She lived in a trailer um, mobile home behind one of her sons. And one day she woke up and somebody had broken, you know, one night, somebody had broken into her trailer. And he came in and he had a gun and he was holding her up. She didn't have much at all. And she said, I'll give you what I have, but can I give you something first? Just sit down there on the edge of the bed and let me tell you about God's wonderful gift of eternal life for every one of us. And she just gave him the gospel. 
Afterwards, he got up, put away his gun, and just left. But what presence of mind? But that's because this love for others gets into your DNA, spiritually, if you're really walking, walking with the Lord. So it's according to the standards of God's integrity, and it acts toward others in a way that is consistent with that desire, God's desire and standards. So we're going to wrap up here this morning, and next time we're going to come back and start talking more about Leviticus uh, 19.18 and what it means to have biblical love for all mankind. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Uh, Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your love for us, and that by thinking about and, and, and analyzing what you have done for us, all that you have done for us, that that gives us an understanding of what true love is really all about and how it is grounded in your own character, in your own person for your love, and that this love is grounded in integrity and righteousness and justice. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to come to grips with what this means. And it's only as we walk by the Spirit and continue to think about your word and let it penetrate the uh, crevices of our soul and our thinking that God the Holy Spirit can use this to transform us so that we can come to be those who imitate uh, your love for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning, anyone listening online, uh, anyone listening to this recording in the future, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've never recognized the good news that Jesus paid it all, he did everything at the cross. We don't do anything. All we do is accept the free gift to trust in him, to believe that he died on the cross for our sins. And that instant we are made alive together and we are raised together and seated together in the heavenlies. We are given a new identity in Christ and we are forever transformed and given eternal life. And that it's a free gift. Nothing we do to earn it. Nothing we can ever do to deserve it. It is simply a, a gift that is given with no strings attached by you. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to them through the Holy Spirit. And, Father, we pray for us that we might not forget what this means, for we must conscientiously think about our dependence upon you and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce the kind of love that only uh, only you can be the source of. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.